I'm Linda Holmes. And I'm Stephen Thompson. There's more stuff to watch and read these days than any one person can get to. That's why we make Pop Culture Happy Hour. Twice a week, we sort through the nonsense, share reactions, and give you the lowdown on what's worth your precious time and what's not. Find Pop Culture Happy Hour on the NPR One app or wherever you get your podcasts. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. I'm Jesse Thorne. If you're feeling a little blue, and I mean, who isn't every now and then, right? I want you to close your eyes, take a deep breath, and think about what I'm about to say. I promise it will cheer you up. Every weeknight, Carl Reiner and Mel Brooks hang out at Carl Reiner's house. Two 90-plus-year-old comedians, best friends forever, genuine legends who made some of the most influential comedy in history. What do they do when they hang out? They watch The Wheel. And what do they talk about? Well, here's Carl. How many steps Vanna White will take before she, before they cut back to uh, <laughs> Pat Sajak? You got money on that? or No, no. We just say it's usually, it's usually six or seven, rarely eight, but never nine. It's Bullseye. Coming up, the one and only Carl Reiner. Your show of shows, The Dick Van Dyke Show, a bunch of movies, literally dozens of books. He is 95 and a half years old, still going strong, just put out another new book, took us upstairs after the interview to show us two new books he's working on. He'll tell me about one of his first gigs ever, back when he was in the service in World War II. He hosted variety shows for GIs, and he would walk out on stage holding a dog leash and an empty dog collar. I'm terribly sorry. I said there was going to be this Monty the Talking Dog was going to perform for you, but he passed away yesterday. (laughs) And he said he was an extraordinary... I'm also an impersonator. I didn't do it anywhere near as... But I'll show you. And then I did all my impersonations. Then Kate and Laura Malavy. Together, they run the fashion label Rodarte, one of the most acclaimed in the world. They also just made their first feature film. How'd they like doing that? I want to make another movie right away. This, to me, was like opening up a creative landscape that didn't exist for me to communicate. It's almost like if you couldn't speak and then someone said, I'm going to give you this gift of language. Then a hip-hop record that turns hip-hop on itself. That's all coming up on Bullseye. Let's go. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Look, I'm going to get right to the point. Carl Reiner has been doing comedy since World War II. He's performed on stage, radio, TV, in movies. He's written novels, nonfiction. He's done it all. He was on TV at a time when TV was just television, this weird new thing that nobody was really sure what to do with. That's pretty amazing, but... The important thing about it is that the stuff that Carl worked on, and I'm talking about in the late 1940s, early 1950s, a lot of it is still really, really funny. I mean, still. And it's not just what he did 65 years ago. I mean, he also created The Dick Van Dyke Show, one of the greatest TV shows of all time. Holds up, by the way. He co-wrote and directed The Jerk, Steve Martin, Mel Brooks, 
his, his best friend in the world, one of his closest collaborators. Um, Carl is also a very prolific writer. He has nearly 20 book titles to his name. His latest is called Too Busy to Die. It's a memoir about the path that he took to becoming who he is today. It talks about his upbringing, his time in the service during World War II, a bunch of other stuff. It's a really fun read. Carl was nice enough to invite us to his living room for the conversation. If you ask him, at the root of all of his amazing success is your show of shows. It was a 90-minute variety show. It starred Sid Caesar and Imogen Coca. Reiner was one of the other actors. It had sketches, dance numbers, all done live, live to camera. Here's a little bit from the show with Carl and Sid Caesar. Your roving reporter Carl Reiner here at LaGuardia Airport, awaiting the arrival of a plane load of eminent visitors, among them the distinguished Viennese authority on the manly art of self-defense. His new book on self-defense has just been published. It's entitled, You Too Can Be a Winner, or Pick on Someone Smaller. Here he is now, Professor Ludwig von Stranglehold. Good evening, Professor. Good evening. <laughs> Professor, I enjoyed your book tremendously. There was one... Professor, there was one chapter that particularly interested me, but I didn't quite finish it. Would you describe to us what you meant by coordination as a means of self-defense? Oh, that's the main basis of, of, of the manly art of self-defense. Suppose I'm walking down the street and you're a fellow with a gun. Now you say, stick him up. Stick him up. Now, the minute I hear that, the split second, it's all in the timing and the coordination. All of a sudden, my left hand goes up here, my right hand goes here, I twirl around, down on the knees, and I plead, please don't kill me. Very loud, understand? Carl Reiner, welcome to Bullseye. It's so exciting to have you on the show. I'm more excited than you are because I'm selling books. <laughs> <laughs> Finally, Carl Reiner, in your 95 years, you get a chance to do some press. Yes, yes. No, I'm having a, a wonderful time because, as I say, uh, at, you know, this Too Busy to Die is interesting because I had just finished a third of biographies I wrote one called I Remember Me, I Just Remembered, and What I Forgot to Remember. And Mel Book's sitting right there. I said, what do I do now? And Mel said, too busy to die. You're too busy to die. <laughs> it became the title of this book. And this one, I, you know, it's funny. I, I had to look through it for a second to remember the subject. It's how I got to be who I am. Going way back to uh, the first thing I ever did when I was in first grade was in a little play called Six Who Pass While the Lentils Boil. And my mother sat next to the principal, and he said to her, not knowing I was her son, that boy's the best one up there. And for the rest of my life, my mother always told me, when she saw anything, you were the best one. And when she, the only time she complained was when on the show of shows, she'd watch the show, and she said, you were the best one, but they didn't give you enough to do. That was her <laughs> only, only complaint. Your your folks were both immigrants. Yes, and yes. Your father was a clockmaker and your a watchmaker. watchmaker. Yeah. Your mother was uh, illiterate, actually. Yes. we. I never found that out until my brother and I when we were about 13. She'd always say to us, when something was in read it to me. I haven't got my glasses. And uh, when I, the saddest thing, and it was almost, when I found it, I, uh, I was like caught in a vortex. I've never been that emotional about anything. She was, she, I, I found her diploma from school. It said, signed by doctors and every this one, 
this child is ready for, you know, to go to work. It was a kindergarten diploma, which she got when she was six years old. I couldn't believe it, because she was able to go to work in the sweatshops, in a flag factory, of all things. And when the Geary Society came to see if there's any child labor, they threw in her bin, in a cloth bin, threw hundreds of flags on and said, don't move. She told me those stories. I couldn't believe it. Were you like a guy that people said, you're funny, you should, you should uh, I guess at the time, be on the radio? You know, I, when I was young, I was always listening to radio shows. And I remember there was a guy named Lou Holtz, a comedian, who used to tell jokes. And I would retell to my friends who didn't listen to it, I would retell the stories and embellish them a little bit. And I, I think that's what started me. It's, that's what starts anybody. You, you fall in love with a performer and you try to copy them, and then you go past that, and something occurs to you that's new, that's never been done before. So uh, when you went into the service, did you have the idea that you could scam your way into the performing arts section of the military? No. As a matter of fact, I, I so wanted to, because before I, I went into the Army, I, I tried to get an equity card, you know, a, a a, uh, an like actress, an, right? To, uh, to be in the uh, union. Yeah. So what I did was I was a second tenor in a touring company of the of the Merry Widow. Didn't do it. I went into I went into uh, the Signal Corps, and I, but I did entertain. I could do impersonations of, and I just entertained at the at the rec halls, and I was on my way. This is an unbelievable story. It's like a bad movie. It's like a good bad movie. I was, we have been going from from Washington State, my troop, the 3117th Signal Battalion, was going to parts unknown. We didn't know where we were going. And we stopped off at Hawaii on our way to, we found out later, Iwo Jima, the invasion of Iwo. And while there, I saw a poster for G.I. Hamlet, but Maury Sevens. I went to see it with my friend. And there on stage was my old friend from the NYA radio workshop, Howie Morris, playing Laertes. I went backstage and said, Howie, you are great. He said, without saying thank you, he said, do you have an act? I said, what? He said, we got these touring companies of soldiers going around to the islands entertaining. And you were always funny. Do you have an act? I said, well, I worked at... He says, come and audition. I auditioned for Maury Sevens and... Captain Alan Ludden. And they said, we'd love to have you with us. I said, I'm going someplace tomorrow. And I remember, I never forgot this. I mean, the major said, uh, we, can, uh, we can talk about that. He called the General Richardson of the Pacific Base Command and had me traded like a ball player. <laughs> I was, the next day, I heard my name called in the, re in the, in the rec room, Carl Reiner, please report. I came there, and I was a member of the uh, entertainment section. I, I never forgot my act. This is a, this was cute too. I was doing an act where I came on stage with a uh, a doggy blanket and a leash, and I said, uh, "I'm terribly sorry." I said there was going to be this Monty the Talking Dog was going to perform for you, but he passed away yesterday. <laughs> 
And they said he was an extraordinary. He's the only talking dog that is known. I could tell you what he did. He says, I could, I, I'm also an impersonator. I didn't do it anywhere near as, but I'll show you. And then I did all my impersonations. And after the audience is applauding, I says, you, you should have heard Monty doing this. I mean, and I said, and he did something I could never even think of doing with a lot of makeup. He played Roy Rogers' Trigger, and I said, I couldn't do that. Anyway, that was my my uh, moments in the Army. But the Army made a comedian out of me. That's one, of the, one of the standard rules of comedy is when you're starting a comedy act, tell the audience a dog died. <laughs> yeah, I know. I well, they went up, but they knew with I had a leash there. They knew, they knew not, that I was... Yeah. <laughs> What happened when you got back from the service? When I got back, uh, very soon after, I started to, uh, television started to happen, and I went on some television shows. I remember them, too. They don't, one was called The Fashion Story with Marilyn Day, a singer. I played a, a fashion photographer, a jokester. And then there was a thing called Maggie McNellis's Crystal Room. This is 1945, 46. Very early in television, and then there was the Fourteenth Street Review, where I was the host of that. Later on, with Jack uh, J- uh, Lemon, and Max Liebman saw me on that show and invited me to come on the show, show of shows, and that made and started my career. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking with Carl Reiner. I was watching uh, your show of shows on YouTube earlier today, and one of the things that struck me about it was I am so used to watching shows that have an audience, have an audience that is just goosed within an inch of its life. You yeah. know, they like put some amphetamines in the water they <laughs> hand out so that people will flip yeah. out. And there's stuff that uh, there's stuff that sits there, and you can see Sid Caesar working for his laughs, particularly. I mean, he's usually at the center of things. Yeah, and, and timing for laughs that he didn't know he was going to get because he could ad-lib. Once he started getting a laugh, he would ad-lib something, maybe a gesture or something, and compound the laugh. When he ad-libbed, did it make it difficult, given that you were uh, doing a, a live-to-the-air show? One of the things that was a rule on the show is never laugh at anything happened. The way fake laughter was done on Burl's show, they turn around and shake their shoulders, make believe they broke themselves up. That was verboten on our show. What kind of guy was Sid Caesar like uh, when he wasn't on stage? He was such a huge performer, like such a enormous presence. Yes, he was. He was a dear, dear man. He loved his his cast and friends. We we went out to dinner every night after the show. Every, for years and years, everybody thought he was a. When it, when I did the the Van Dyke show, they thought that Alan Brady was based on Sid. I said, no, Sid was a pussycat. He was our friend. He was. He loved to laugh, and he loved all the people around him. He found Mel Brooks. You know, he was a, a young kid a writer. He wasn't on the staff. Sid brought him in. What was it like the first time that you met Mel Brooks? I'll never forget it, because he wasn't on the show yet. He was visiting Sid. He used to give Sid jokes. Sid would give him $25, 30 jokes. But I walked in the room my first day, not knowing anybody, and standing up was this guy. I don't know who he was. And he was playing a Jewish pirate. 
And I remember him saying, you know how hard it is to set sail these days? You know they were there charging for sail cloth? $3.40 a yard. I can't afford to pillage and rape anymore. That was the first time I saw it. And the, the following week, knowing what he though I saw a thing called We the People Speak, where somebody said I was in Stalin's toilet and I heard Stalin say, I said, crazy. I went to Mel without even asking anything. I said, sir, I understand you knew Jesus. Just that. He says, thin lad, right? <laughs> he he was he was sa- he was sandals. He walked around with twelve other guys. Yes, yeah. They used to come into the store. They never bought anything. But nice boys, I gave them water. That was the first lines I said of it. And for the next ten years, I questioned him just to lighten the load in the office at parties. People made special parties. So about ten years we did it. You've been you've been uh, best buds with Mel Brooks for. Uh, 65 years or whatever it is. 19, we met in 1950. Uh, yeah, no, 1950, I guess. Yeah. At, at first, did you think, God, this guy's exhausting? No, no, we had more fun together. And then when he married and our wives got together so and loved each other so much and had so much in common, we became a really close-knit family, you know. See the funniest guy you ever met? Single funniest man I ever met in my life, ever, 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 ever. And I met some funny guys, including, you know, Steve Martin. Um, your uh, show, The Dick Van Dyke Show, uh, grew out of a pilot that you had written for yourself. Yes. What happened is after the uh, the review format disappeared, I was being offered television situation comedies. A lot of horses and guns were being shot then too. And I came, and I remember the, said, what do I, 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 my, I had read some bad shows and my wife said, why did you write one? I said, I said, I don't know about it. She says, well, you, you can write. And I, I remember exactly when it happened. I talked to myself. I said, Rhino, what piece of ground do you stand on that nobody else stands on? That's what you should write. I said, well, I live in New Rochelle with a wife and children. I work in New York as a writer-actor on a show. I write about that, the home life of a, uh, a writer for television. And I wrote the thing called Head of the Family. And I, I got Barbara Britton to play my wife, Morty Gunty, Sylvia Miles to play Buddy and Sally. We did a pilot, played it on the air, didn't do too well. I, I was okay. And I said, I had written 13 episodes in case somebody bought it. I wanted to have a Bible for the other writers to know what the show was about. And so I put it to bed. I said, that's it. That's the best I can do. And I started to write movies. I wrote a Doris Day movie, The Thrill of It All. And Sheldon Leonard was given my scripts by my agent. We had a mutual agent, Harry Kalsheim. And Sheldon called me in and he said, these are wonderful scripts. I said, Sheldon, I don't want to fail twice with the same material. And he said, good impression, by the way, you won't fail or get a better actor to play you. 
And he suggested Dick Van Dyke, maybe the most talented man that ever lived. Can I suggest that from now on, you just note ahead of all impressions that it's a good impression, just so folks know? Yeah, yeah. If you do any further impressions, yeah, yeah. Right. just make sure to let us know if it's good or bad. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> what were the things that you found yourself writing for Dick Van Dyke that you might not have written for yourself? If you were in that, part. oh, any kind of musical number, my God, I I cherish those musical numbers because I wrote recently a forty-four page show and a musical show it was twenty-three. <laughs> to see Mary and him dance together was one of the pleasures of life. Anything else? Was there anything else that was really special about him as a performer? He could do anything you asked him to, and then improve it. I remember once we did a thing on sneezes. Where he got he was allergic to something. He thought he was allergic to his family. He did about a, a hundred different kind of sneezes, and I couldn't believe it. And then he could do two things at once: sneeze and burp or something. I once gave him a, a problem. I came in. I was off stage. I said, "I want you to sneeze, burp, fart, get a buzz. Uh, uh, there's a f fly buzzing around you and an itch in your ear. I want you to do them all at once." He did them. <laughs> yeah. What about Mary Tyler Moore? You cast uh, Dick Van Dyke as the character that you had played in the original pilot at the suggestion of a producer. You went and saw him in a show and said, this guy's amazing, of right, course, this right. is it. And then you had to bring in people to play this yeah, life. I saw 23 women. And did you have, even have an idea of what you wanted? No, I just know I knew this needed... I had no idea. That's I said to Sheldon, I don't know what I'm looking for. He said, you'll know when you'll find him. And one day, a girl comes in, and she didn't want to come in, Mary Tyler Moore, because she had failed at two auditions that day. But in through the door came a woman with beautiful hair, sparkling eyes, a smile that could kill, and beautiful legs. And I, I knew it. I gave her a page to read, and I said, read this. She read the first line. I sold it, and I, I described it. I heard a ping in her voice, and I made my hand into the claw that usually picks up candy in an arcade, and I went across the room, and she thought I was going to cost her. I grabbed the top of her head. I said, come with me, young lady. Walked her down the hall to Sheldon, dropped her, and said, I found her. You said I would, and that was how I found Mary. We'll continue my conversation with Carl Reiner in his very own living room after a quick break. Even more stories about the Dick Van Dyke Show around the corner. Stay tuned. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. Support for NPR and the following message come from New West Records with J.D. McPherson's new album, Undivided Heart and Soul, chronicling a series of upheavals, frustrations, roadblocks, and kismet including a cross-country move, failed creative relationships, and learning to love making music again by letting go. The album covers wide musical ground from gritty rock to R&B, country, and soul. Available October 6th. More information at jdmcpherson.com. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking with Carl Reiner. He created The Dick Van Dyke Show. He wrote and directed some of Steve Martin's best films. He's done tons more, too. His latest book, Too Busy to Die, is out now. When I watch The Dick Van Dyke Show, I feel like, I mean, look, Dick Van Dyke is a very handsome man in his own right. Uh, but I, it seems no fair 
that someone as good looking as Mary Tyler Moore should be funny. Like that doesn't seem appropriate. I, I know. You know what I mean? She didn't know she could be funny. In the very first few shows, she told me she wasn't a comedian. And one of the first shows, I had written something where I said she cries, funny cry, you know, not a, a, a comical. She says, how do you cry comically? Show me. And the only time I ever showed her, I showed her. She did it. That was the end of showing her anything. She she was, she was a kinesthetic. She knew she knew. Dancers are that way. She's a great dancer, a really great dancer. Everything came to her naturally. You must have. I mean, it must have been a big deal to protect the show, in a world where, I mean, this is always true, but uh, there weren't a lot of choices at the time. There was a lot of dumb television on at the time, and I'm not going to insult anyone in particular, but like. You were making a show that was for everybody, but that also was specifically not dumb on purpose. <laughs> well, well, I'm not. I, You know what it is? I wrote about myself, and I said, I'm not that different than everybody else. I got a wife and kids, and I, I shop, I do, I argue. I said, write about that, and you'll be writing about everybody. So that's exactly what the rule of thumb. When any writers came, I said, don't invent anything Tell me, anything happened in your life with your wives, your kids? We'll write about that. And that's what we wrote about for the most part. Every once in a while, I went crazy and wrote like I wanted to do a takeoff of Twilight Zone. So I wrote a crazy one that could know 5,200 pounds of walnuts. <laughs> the walnut show was called. Yeah, it's there's a there's an absolutely amazing scene in that Twilight Zone takeoff on, uh, on the Dick Van Dyke show where – They've sort of been – Dick Van Dyke is going through this thing where he's trying to figure out if he's been gaslighted basically uh, by walnuts. And he comes home to try and find his wife and he can't find his wife and he's going insane and he opens his closet and this river of walnuts pours Five, out. 500 pounds. Or five, we had to give walnuts away <laughs> to the uh, – yeah, that was uh, – <laughs> That was a, a labor of love, that show, because when I came up with that show, Sheldon Leonard wasn't sure it was going to work. And he said, well, you, you do it. I, I have no idea. It doesn't sound. Anyway, at the end, he, he wrote to the paper. He said, I could be wrong. He said, that's one of the best shows we've done. It was based on the, uh, the, you know, the body snatchers. But I couldn't use big body snatchers. I made the big, uh, the big you know, uh, zucchinis, whatever they were, into little walnuts. Well, I mean, I I love that your idea for this like pretty grounded, sweet domestic sitcom was like, oh yeah, and then we're also going to do an insane dream episode about walnuts. Yeah, I love the fact that Barry had an eye in the back of her head, so she could always see him <laughs> when he walked away. She parted her hair and says, "I don't do that," you know. And she, she, I mean, all these little things that. May tickled me. She she comes out on that river of walnuts yeah. out of the out of the closet with you know with like her with like her cheek yeah. and the heel of her hand yeah. like batting her eyes. She did, face she, down as though she just slid into second base. Only a good only a a, a talented graceful dancer could come down. Those, <laughs> I'm not kidding. Yeah. It's she was that. Oh, it was so sad her leaving so early. You're listening to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm in Carl Reiner's living room talking to the comedy legend. 
I mean, I imagine that one of the most difficult things about being 95 years old is that people die before you do. I know. Yesterday, somebody died that I was surprised. Yeah, I checked the... I, I wrote that thing that uh, was on HBO now. If I'm not in the obits, I'll have breakfast. And I read the obits every morning to see if anybody's young or old. Lately, I'm the oldest one. They're going too early. They're 80s, 90s. When Mel Brooks comes over, what do the two of you talk about? Uh, how many steps Vanna White will take before she, before they cut back to Pat uh, <laughs> Sajak? You got money on that, or no, no? We just <laughs> say it's usually it's usually six or seven, rarely eight, but never nine. I would have pegged the two of you for Jeopardy guys more than Wheel of Fortune. We guys. watched both. You watch first. We watched Jeopardy and try to guess along with them, and then we watch uh, all the good talk shows, you know, like Trevor Noah, he's wonderful. And of course, uh, John Oliver is wonderful. And uh, Samantha B is brilliant. She is brilliant. You're a regular on Conan these days. Conan, well, I did one or two of them, yeah. Yeah, I will. He's, he's a wonderful guy. Too tall for this world, though. <laughs> he's so tall. You're pretty tall for a comedian yourself. Oh, I used to be taller. You know, you lose a, an inch every decade after 60. I used to be 6'1". I'm about 5'8 now. <laughs> I'm not 5'9", maybe. You're not. Yes, I think so. You're a big man. You do lose an inch every decade after 60. Carl Reiner, thank you so much for being on Bullseye. It was really awesome to get to talk to you. I really enjoyed myself. I'd like to continue, but if you have to go someplace, I'll go upstairs. <laughs> <laughs> Carl Reiner recorded at his house in Beverly Hills. Just after that, we were lucky enough to get a tour of his place. He took us up to his office. He showed us the not one but two books he is currently working on for next year. Guy just doesn't know when to quit. Make sure to check out his latest book, Too Busy to Die. We'll have a link to buy it on the Bullseye page at MaximumFun.org. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Kate and Laura Malavi are two of the biggest names in fashion. They grew up in Northern California. They graduated from UC Berkeley with completely non-fashion-related degrees. And then they moved to Pasadena, where their parents lived, and decided to get very serious about designing. They put everything they had into it, working in their parents' kitchen. And then they kind of blew up. They brought 10 pieces to New York, and they came home on the cover of Women's Wear Daily. They got a face-to-face -face meeting with Anna Wintour, who's been a champion of theirs ever since. In 2005, they founded Rodarte, their clothing brand. In the years since, they have piled up acclaim while staying fiercely independent. They won the CFDA Award for Women's Wear Designers of the Year. That's probably the most prestigious award in all of fashion. They've gone beyond the fashion world, too. They won a Cooper Hewitt National Design Award. They got a National Art Award from Americans for the Arts. They even helped design the incredible costumes for the movie Black Swan. Now they've directed their first ever film. It's called Woodshock. It just hit theaters. Woodshock stars Kirsten Dunst, who plays Teresa. Teresa's mom dies in the beginning of the movie. From there, it explores topics like death and guilt, marijuana and nature. It's strange, incredibly atmospheric, also kind of awe-inspiring. A bit like being stranded in the woods, which is what the title suggests. 
In this scene from the beginning of Woodshock, Teresa is telling her mom about a childhood memory. Remember when we used to play in the woods together? I got lost that one summer. When I turned around, you were gone. When they found me, I almost didn't want to come back. Lori and Kate Malavy, welcome to Bullseye. It's great to have you on the show. Thanks for having us. We're excited to be here. How long did the two of you live in Aptos, California? Until we were just maybe early teens. Yeah. Before we turned teenagers. Did you live... Aptos is on the central coast of California near Santa Cruz, if folks are familiar with Santa Cruz. And, you know, it's a world of, like, giant trees and stuff. Right. Yeah. Yes. And next to, you know, Santa Cruz, you have the boardwalk and you have the mystery spot, and you have things that kind of blow your mind even as children. You always say that the beginning beginning part of The Lost Boys is just a perfect documentation of what our childhood was like because you were kind of the nerdy kids at the comic store, and then there's all the cool punks and all the people in skateboards mulling around and creating that atmosphere. And actually the footage in that film, because we're huge fans of it, is was documentary footage. They just shot the opening of that film. They just went and shot kids at the boardwalk. And um, But we did grow up on the edge of the old growth redwood forest. Like we literally grew up on the edge of it. And our father was a mycologist who, you know, studying mushrooms. So we had a lot of time spent in kind of nature and in you know, very magical space of giant trees. You know, I look back on it, and it really defined a lot of, I think, our creative process in a way, but it also defined a lot of the way, I think, the sensitivity we have toward observation. But it was so, it's so cool to kind of have that experience because it's also something you realize later in life that not many people, as many people as you think, have been around these trees. I think growing up in California, it's kind of you almost assume everyone's had an up-close encounter with them. That's just not really the case. Yeah, they, I mean, to say that they are awesome is kind of an understatement. Right. Like there's, the the scale and age of them is something that is very difficult to absorb and engage with. Sure, and I think even, even, I think honestly in, in working and writing this first film that we made, the starting point for us is exactly what you're saying. We literally had this, you know, conversation between the two of us where we we kind of said to each other, there's something about when you stand in front of these trees, the way they make you feel. I mean, you kind of think of your life as much smaller um, in importance and even meaning than you would think because it the scale shows you something about your place in the universe. And I think Laura and I were both very interested, well, how can we translate that feeling? Because it's a psychic feeling. And a lot of artists, you know, we were saying, like, whether it's Steinbeck, Ansel Adams, people that have captured these trees over time have all said the consistent thing. They're impossible to capture. Their scale is virtually impossible to capture. Um, Certainly cinematically, it's problematic and hard. It's like a physical impossibility to photograph them because you can't get 
right. far enough away. They're so big and tall. Right. And you can't get far enough away in the forest to see all of them in the same way that you can't just look up and see the top of You're them. Right. Yeah. You really can't do much in terms of shooting. Like we had zero camera movement we could have. And to the point where it's like, you know, the producers around you are like, is this worth going to do? And Laura and I were like, oh, hell yeah. So we blindfolded Kirsten and we kind of walked her into this area with these two trees. And we took the blindfold off and we just started shooting her. And that's some of the first footage you see in the film, which was why it's interesting is because it was it's located in a part of the film that's kind of the crucial turning point in this kind of psychological journey of this character. And we really just captured Kirsten's interaction and reaction to these trees. And her reaction was um, not only, I think, located in the experience of what her character would be going through, but it was also, I think, just her actual reaction to the profound, you know, it's almost hard to describe. There's something so mad. It's a spiritual type of thing. It doesn't involve necessarily a religious overtone, but there's something soulful about it. When the two of you were uh, like teenagers, let's say, Mm -hmm. did you have the idea that you would grow up to be a team of fashion designers? That's a good question. I didn't even... I thought about I wanted to be a neuroradiologist in school, so it was probably who knows that was my drive to get to med school. And why did you want to be a neuroradiologist? No, I picked it in a college fair one day, and I liked science, so it wasn't even (laughs) based in anything. I didn't even know what it meant. I think I did a a report where I was, you know, saying it talks about your brain waves and all this stuff. I didn't know what that was. I saved her actually. We both went to Berkeley, and I was a year ahead of her at school. And at that time, I had already, you know, was majoring in art history. And I would run into her on campus, and she would just be crying. And I said, I finally said to her, Laura, you're never going to be a neuroradiologist. I, I Keep in mind, I just couldn't do the math. I was fine in organic chemistry and physics and all those things. It was just the math. I, it kicked me out of so my major. So I just said, you're going to switch your major right now. Pick something fun. I was like, call mom and dad. They're, they're not going to care. And then I remember saying, we're going to go see Elliot Smith tonight, and yeah. we're moving on. And we went and watched that show, and then, like, it was great. she never looked back. Yeah, I never thought about it. I was like, <laughs> I'm an English major now, and I can make up stuff and get A's. Was it a matter of giving yourself permission to do something impractical? I think it was just realizing at a young age it's fine to change your mind and that you don't have to be locked into things at all. And it doesn't matter. At the end of the day, I was much happier. I could do, you know, morph into something else, and and it felt very freeing. Um, it's even the way we approach having a company. We're just like, well, you know, I'm not going to make up some big, long-winded five-year plan because I want the freedom of where it can go. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking with Laura and Kate Malavy. They founded the Rodarte clothing brand. They've just directed their first film. It's called Woodshock. What were the ideals that you think were partly driving what you were doing? My The main things that I think drove us was this idea that you have to protect your creativity and you have to make sure that you are not giving too much to other people because that really affects what you do. And I've learned over time that we're very insular and we don't really share a lot because, peop- you know, if you woke up this morning and you said, I really love this red shirt, I'm going to wear it. And maybe you would say to your wife, what do you think of this red shirt? And then she would say, no, I don't like that red shirt. Then suddenly you might 
slightly second guess it, even if you're not aware of it. And that's what people do. They're constantly making people second guess what they have to say. So our kind of our main thing was to really, you know, support the idea that we have a singular voice and we should protect it and to make sure that anything that we bother making we hope could have some type of integrity and over time would mean something that, you know, would we would be proud of it. So we always say if we have this bookshelf of all the things we've done, that we would be proud of those things that sit on there. And and that's kind of how we run all of our choices. That's And that's how we run a business. But that, I don't know if this is what you should tell everyone when they start fashion because you don't make any money that way. <laughs> well, I, I mean, I was reading um, – I read a piece that came out not that long ago in the Washington Post by the fashion critic there. Oh, you mean Robin Givan? Yeah, that's oh, the one. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. Um, and she, in, in this piece, she, I think she uh, it's fair to say she expressed uh, some admiration for some of the clothes that you yeah. make. But she seemed genuinely upset, yeah, like angered. Yes. that you didn't particularly ha- seem to have any plans or goals to scale your business. Right. Well, you know, that's not an interview we partook in. Yeah. So it's not like she was asking our opinion about anything. Actually, this was a, an amazing article because she wrote something that I don't think she meant to be positive. But a lot of people that read it, because I haven't personally read it, said to me later, you know what? She, it just sounded like you were cool at the end of it. And I was thinking, <laughs> you know, it's so interesting because the thing that she was attacking or criticizing about what we are, why does she even care? I always wonder this. I think, why would it matter to this person if we're a small business or if we care about what we make and we're not polluting the environment and we're, you know, super conscious of the people that are making things? And it's so such an interesting dialogue because we're – in the grand scheme of things, this a speck on the blip of the, the money in fashion. And I always think we're the ones fighting for creativity. We're women running a business. You know, it's like all these things that we have, and it it's still I'm disconnected to understanding why it would make her feel that way. It's like pick on someone that's making a bunch of junk. That's what I always think. I think what's interesting is kind of what Laura is putting out. Like I, from our perspective, we're just – protecting our creativity. Um, we have an individual voice. And we know our job is to make things that make people think or kind of dream and um, to be upset about it not being kind of scaled to the more mass, like, you know, version of that to me is almost like, well, you know, that's like looking in film and saying, well, how come Cassavetes isn't Spielberg and saying that Cassavetes doesn't, can't have the same impact that Spielberg did. Spielberg has tremendous, incredible impact, but Cassavetes has incredible impact too. And it was very different scales in terms of budgets and how those films were made and um, maybe even mass audience. So I, I think in a sense, it's like you can't discount something if it's smaller. At the end of the day, listen, we make clothes for creative expression. That's why we make them. The moment that I don't feel artistic about it is the moment I'm not doing that. So, and that's, if that's not okay for some people, that's okay. But we can't, you know, but it works for other people. But I think part of the reason the people that connect to our clothes the way that they do is because of the artistic spirit behind it. Are you comfortable with the idea that you're making um, objects of extraordinary luxury? 
that they're very, very, very expensive. Well, I yeah. do because of what goes, you know, one of yeah. the things that's interesting is what goes into making them. I think a lot of times people are like, why is it so expensive? Because, and I understand it because I myself feel that way too sometimes about, you know, designer clothes. But what I feel and, that and way often, about men often, collecting cars. Yeah, and often yeah. that often yeah. that money in designer clo- designer uh, clothing is going primarily to essentially to to marketing. In that, you know, if you buy a coach right. handbag, I'm I'm going to use. I don't know what examples would put you in a bad position socially. Yeah, I'm going to say uh, yeah. if you if you buy a coach handbag, you're paying a really significant price for a very inexpensively made product where the the thing that has convinced you that price is primarily marketing rather than money that's gone into the manufacturer well, but I- in but there are also examples of um things that take you know right. if you if you're buying a if if you're buying a Savile Row suit sure someone um, gets paid to pad the lapel right yeah and i think with what we do you know, there's oftentimes collections we've done where I actually look at the pieces and think, how did we ever get those in stores? I mean, they're like little artworks. We would, you know, there's collections where it's like the fabric would be hand sandpapered and then burned and then we were hand dyeing everything. And by the time it's done, and we're actually going to be doing a show at the National Museum for Women in the Arts in Washington, D.C., and there's going to probably be a, it's a kind of a, a going to be all from all the different collections. So we had an opportunity to pull. We had like I don't know, with the curator like a hundred pieces out, and I haven't looked at these in a long time. And some of them, even to me, I was like, oh my god! Like you could see that they're like little sculptures, or and I could see all the work that went into them. And I'm actually even surprised now looking at them. But what I would because they don't look like what you would see hanging in the store floor. And I would even say with our clothes, even more. They're not massly made in terms of like – even though designer pieces can be, be handcrafted and made in a very special way, like ours are like sometimes one of three, one of six that exists in the world. It's so much work. That's why it kind of borderlined on couture to be honest. And so for me, it's like being in that space. But it's just the ideas warrant that I like. The ideas are complicated. So to bring them to life, it – really takes a lot of time, effort, creativity. And in that sense, that's why they're expensive. But it's, you know, like Laura's saying, probably like why really expensive car is expensive. But, you know, and the people that are making it are getting paid well because they're more, they're artists. We'll have more with Kate and Laura Malavi after a quick break. When we return, they'll tell me how working in film changed them as artists. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Support for this podcast and this message comes from 2020, where creatives get inspiring, authentic stock photos. Unlike traditional staged stock photos, 2020 has millions of real-world images your audience will actually engage with, all under a simple royalty-free license. Today, 2020 is offering Bullseye listeners a seven-day free trial of five photos. Monthly subscription begins after seven days. To start your trial, go to 220.com slash bullseye. I'm Scott Detrow. There's so much political news to follow these days, but you don't have to keep up with all of it. You just have to keep up with us on the NPR Politics Podcast. With a team of NPR political reporters and editors, we record two episodes a week and sometimes more when the big news happens. Find the NPR Politics Podcast on the NPR One app or wherever you get your podcasts. 
You're listening to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. We'll get back to my interview with Kate and Laura Malavy in just a minute. But first, we've got a new sister show here at Maximum Fun. It's called Heat Rocks. The hosts are Oliver Wang, who you've heard on this show and on Pop Rocket for years and years. He is a music scholar and a professional DJ. His co-host is Morgan Rhodes. She's a music supervisor. She picks the tunes for things like Selma and Queen Sugar and Dear White People. Every week on this show, they get a special guest on, a musician, a scholar, a critic, to talk about one album that upended their world. There's a bunch of really awesome people coming up on the show. Uh, Dame Funk, Jay Smooth, Shea Serrano. The very first episode goes live Tuesday, October 3rd. It's with Joy Gilliam of the Dungeon Family and Lucy Pearl. And she's going to be talking about the great Betty Davis. Do us a favor. Pull out your phone, your MacBook, whatever it is. Open up your favorite podcasting app. Give Heat Rocks a listen. You won't regret it. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guests are Kate and Laura Malavy. They run the fashion label Rodarte. They just made their first foray into feature filmmaking. Their movie Woodshock is in theaters now. I think a lot of people approach women's fashion or think of women's fashion as essentially a design problem that's about uh, finding the answer of how do you make the person wearing the clothing beautiful Mm -hmm. um, or maybe sexy. Yeah. Ooh, yeah, that's not our company. <laughs> <laughs> Sexy is the last word used. I know. But it's true. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. Well, I, I just, I, I wonder how you feel about that part of the expectation of clothing, and especially clothing for women. There are sort of different expectations for men, but... Well, I have a real feeling about it because I'm going to keep this about fashion, but I am going to segue it a little bit into our movie, too. I think as a woman making something, I mean, you really work in a paradigm and you're very – and I think certainly Laura and I are very aware of that paradigm, and especially the idea that, you know, people want to define a woman, um, you know, through – Through a male gaze. Yeah. yeah. And the idea of what it means to be sexy and how you can police how sexy something can be or how sexy it should be or shouldn't be, you know, really the policing of the body. And I think what was even interesting in in our film, because in, in the film, Kirsten's like walking around in a bra. You know, she's pretty much we stripped a lot of the layers back because if the idea was that the journey of the film was to look inward to her own experience, um, we kind of wanted to have her be as vulnerable in terms of for the viewer's experience of her. Um, that being said, one of the biggest comments we get, I mean, over and over again after these screenings, like whether it's – an elderly woman or a 16-year-old will come up to me and say, I just loved watching this experience of her and being in her mind and not feeling like you were objectifying her body, which is an interesting thing considering, like, she is stripped back. It's not like we have her in big baggy sweatshirts and it's just as simple as saying that. But I think that um, for us, when in, in terms of our fashion, it's about creativity. It was, it's always about what we want to make. And it's never about this idea of, this makes a woman feel sexy. This makes a woman feel that. Well, we don't make a woman feel anything. And I don't know what a woman should be. Just so you know, too, it's not like I don't love the idea of, like, someone looking sexy or feeling that way. I think that's amazing. And if they feel that way in our clothes, that's great, too. I'm just not the person that's trying to put that on someone. I need that to come from the person and their own empowerment. If that makes sense. I don't know. It's a hard thing to 
what could you do in a film that you can't do in fashion? Oh, that's a good question. That's a lot of things. Shout it's out a... to my girl Tavi Gevinson gave me that question. To ask. <laughs> oh, she did. Well, yeah. she's so smart. Damn well, it. you know, it's, I, know. I would break. say you could do. It's it's a completely different process. So, I think that we really were able to explore an idea in its most creative form to the, its fullest extent, rather than having an idea and, and really trying to flesh out an idea and a narrative. Um, for me, it was an internal journey. It was so interesting to, you know, I've been designing for 11 years at the point, well, maybe 10 years when we when we shot the film. And I remember calling up my friend Autumn and I said, I don't know what's happened to me on the set, but I'm a, a, I felt things in my in my body that I had never felt before in my entire life. And and I guess that's because, you know, when you're in one field, you can um, – you define, we, I know how to design. I know how to do this. I know the things that I will approach with it. But in film, I suddenly was accessing an entirely different part of my brain and utilizing that. And that was really powerful. After doing a few – you know, we've been this last month, you know, going to San Francisco, wherever we go, and we do these screenings. And we have an, often an opportunity, you know, afterwards to kind of talk to people if they want to come up and talk to us. And people are coming up to us and talking to us about very personal things, things that are like when I lost someone in my life, my whole life shattered. I never felt so isolated. The world changed. Um, we had a really interesting older gentleman who came up to us and said, you know – I just really loved watching this movie because I haven't been this challenged in a movie in a long time. And he was like, really wanted to talk about how he loved being challenged. So in a sense, it's like people are coming up to us and we're having conversations with strangers about very intimate experiences, whether or not it's a personal thing about loss or isolation or depression. One person told us, he said, you know what, what really freaked me out watching this movie was some of the things that I feel and the anxiety I have, he's like, it was just, it really dislocated me watching this. So I feel like I never have those conversations from a fashion show. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm in the studio with Kate and Laura Malavy, the filmmakers and founders of Rodarte. Were you scared that you would embarrass yourselves? Oh. Well, we embarrass ourselves all, all the time. The time. <laughs> So I don't even know if I was thinking about that. I mean, honestly. I want you to know that's all I ever think about. Okay. You know what? I mean, honestly, it's like, well, you can't really be afraid of that yeah. if you make things. And it doesn't even matter if you make, if you're like making a film or it really goes outside of that almost. Because when you put yourself out in any forum that's like a public zone where people are going to have opinion. But nowadays, it's like, that's just a teenage life cycle. I mean, you're on the internet. People tell you crazy shit all the time. So I almost feel like we all have to go through this now, whether or not you're making things and it's in the public eye, yeah. or you just have an Instagram site and you're 14 and people say things to you on it. We all kind of experience that reality. I, I just think, though, you know, it's, I think what I was more worried about, it wasn't that. I think I was more worried about Knowing that I felt like I really wanted to do something, going into doing it, but when you haven't done it before, it's kind of like, you know, people say, well, you won't know until you go through the whole process. And I always thought, well, I kind of know I'm going to love this. So for me, it was more like as we went through the whole process, what really occurred to me was, oh, I'm in love with doing this. Like, I want to make another movie right away. Like, this to me was like 
opening up a creative landscape that didn't exist for me to communicate. So it's almost like if you couldn't speak and then someone said, I'm going to give you this gift of language. And then you said, I can make all these things with the language. So that's kind of what I found. It almost felt like that experience. But I think in terms of you feeling like the pressure of never done something and, you know, what what will happen when you put it out in the world? And is this, you know, all those those questions like I, I think I've learned over time through but the you, fashion part to let go of that. But you are you're not not sensitive to those things. You just have to protect who gets to talk to you like that. It's so helpful to say those people are not in your day to day life. But if you do have someone in your ear every day telling you you should be scared you're doing that. That starts affecting the way you think. But if no one knows you're doing something and you can do it privately and you try to make it as safe for you to really flourish in, I feel like that can be a powerful way of, you know, jumping off that ledge a little bit. Well, we had one show I remember in particular, which was based on Japanese horror films. It turned out to be, over time, one of our... No, it's the only show people talk to us about. It's, it's the, true. It's, it's the, the number most, one. I thing. guess it might be. I think it might yeah. be our number one thing. But <laughs> I remember at the time, I've never done this before. I always have a lot of nervous energy. And I remember crying backstage before saying, I don't think anyone's going to like it. That's the one time I really remember that feeling. And it's, you know what? You always feel that way on some level. But then you realize it's not why you're making things. I mean, can you imagine? It's like, Half the things you loved. One of my favorite stories my dad tells is when 2001 came out in theater and he said, I was sitting in the theater. And, you know, keeping in mind, no one had ever seen anything like that movie. And he said, I'm sitting in a theater and I'm with my friends and our minds are being blown. He's like, but half the theater got up and walked out. Well, you know what? It's like that's the point. It's like, you know, you make things. You've got to let go of it. It does affect you and you are worried about Will people like it? Will people understand it? You know, of course, those thoughts are in your mind. But I think, honestly, like you can't be you can't let that fear rule rule you else. You won't ever do anything. Well, Laura and Kate, thank you so much for taking the time to be on Bullseye. What a joy to get to talk to you. Thanks for having us. It's fun to be in this room. When we take off these headphones and we don't have radio voices, we're going to be bummed. (laughs) I know. (laughs) You know, we have to go back to reality now. It actually does suck. I know. Kate and Laura Malavi. You can see their debut film, Woodshock, in theaters in Los Angeles and New York right now. If you want to see their design work, we'll have a link to some of their latest stuff on the Bullseye page at MaximumFun.org. You're listening to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Before we finish an episode here on Bullseye, we'd like to offer a recommendation from me. It's called The Outshot. This, this right here, this might be the most urgent sound hip-hop ever produced. That rumbling, terrifying, thrilling bass line is from a song called Hip Hop. It's by the rap duo Dead Prez. It came out almost 20 years ago, and it is just as stirring now as it was then. But what is it stirring us to? Dead Prez were, as a group, 
explicitly focused on a pan-African Marxist revolution. But hip-hop, the song, isn't about theory. And it's barely about revolution, frankly. Or maybe it's more accurate to say that if it is about a revolution, it's about what James Brown once called a revolution of the mind. This song, it doesn't turn us outward. It turns us inward. It's a challenge to our identities, and it's also a challenge to the very genre of music that it represents. It says, basically, that the revolution starts with getting real. One thing about music, when it hit, you feel no pain. White folks say it controls your brain. I know better than that. That's game, man. We ready for that. Two soldiers headed the pack. Matter of fact, who got the And where my army at? Rather attack and not react. Back to beats, it don't reflect. Let me explain. One of hip-hop's greatest strengths is the way that it gives us a dream, an opera. Aspirational sometimes, sometimes cautionary, but always grand and, and mythic. And this feels like that kind of song. I mean, that bass sound, just the urgency of the record. They make you vibrate. You want to hit the streets and, like, bust some heads. But Dead Prez aren't in this record asking how high we can get, how pumped we can get. They're asking if hip-hop is selling us a bill of goods, if we're selling ourselves a lie. The essential point of the song is this. Hip-hop is not your salvation. Your salvation is your salvation. Whether your project put on hold in the real world. These just people with ideas. They just like me and you when the smoke and cameras disappear again. The real world. world. It's bigger world. than all these fake, fake records. Wait, poor folks got the millions and my woman's disrespected. If you check one- M1 says the real world is bigger than all these fake ass records. That's the point. Now, to be accused of fakeness in hip-hop is often to be accused of being soft, of not being big and bad enough. But the DPs are doing much more than that. They're accusing us of running from our problems, running from ourselves. If you check one, two, my word of advice to you is just relax. Just do what you got to do. If that don't work, then kick the fact. If you were fighter, rider, bada, flame, igniter, crowd, exciter, or you want to just get hot and just say it. But then if you a lie, lie, pants on fire, wolf cry, agent with a why, I'm going to know it when I play it. It's bigger than hell, The question they ask here is, can we confront the world if we don't first confront ourselves? If we don't get real about who we are? And of course, this call to reality is still thrilling because the music is thrilling. It's impossible to hear the song without being adrenalized. I mean, I am pumped up listening to it in the booth right now. So does this song about the narcotizing power of hip-hop end up being a tribute to the adrenalizing power of art? Is it even a service to subvert the magical power of creativity and its mystery and its fantasy? I, I, I honestly don't know. But I do know this. When the DPs come on the radio, I'm going straight for the knob, turning up the volume. You would rather have a Lexus or justice, a dream or some substance, a beamer or a necklace or freedom. Silver like me, don't play a hate, I just stay awake. This real hip hop, and it don't stop till we get the popo off the block. They call it hip That's my outshot. That's all for this week's Bullseye. Bullseye recorded at MaximumFun.org, world headquarters overlooking MacArthur Park in beautiful Los Angeles, California. 
Uh, our production fellow Khalid is currently reporting that uh, he saw the filming of the television show SWAT going on in the park today. Those Hollywood magicians making their magic, huh? And by making their magic, I mean inconveniencing us somewhat. This show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Kevin Ferguson. He has help from Christian Duenas and Casey O'Brien this week. Our production fellows here at MaximumFun.org are Nick Liao and the aforementioned Khalid Mualim. Our senior producer is Laura Swisher. All our interstitial music is provided by Dan Wally. Our theme was recorded by the Go Team and provided to us by Memphis Industries, which is their record label. They've got a new record coming out. Keep your eyes peeled for that. If you'd like to hear any of our past shows, they are all free. Just go to MaximumFun.org. And while you're at it, check out the Bullseye page on Facebook. We've got a bunch more info about the show there uh, with sneak peeks of upcoming interviews. Um, There's a great photo of me and Carl Reiner looking at his next book up in his office. Love that. Just uh, go to Facebook.com slash Bullseye with Jesse Thorne or just search for Bullseye on Facebook. I guess that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR.